fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So too should you be glad and rejoice with me. I hoped in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all all of you and is distressed because he heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Father, thank you for those that risk their lives now in so many places, those that are serving overseas in difficult places that risk their lives for the gospel. Help us to encourage and support them. And even those that are not facing the life risk at the moment, um, here, the ministry here, help us support those that give so much in ministry. Lord, help us listen now to what Brother Dave brings to us and um, help Dave to draw again on your word. Um, Help him to present this and give us open hearts and open minds to listen and appreciate this. Help Dave in this time now. Amen. I need to say at the start here that I've got lectin envy. Uh, I don't know where you got this lectin, but I'd love to take it home with me. I'm just not sure it passes carry-on luggage. But... Oh, I did. Okay, are there any doctors here? <laughs> no, it's um, not carry-on luggage. Maybe wheel-on luggage. Um, I uh, thought that my ministry had finished. I had resigned from Crossroads Christian Church. I'd planned to go north and then God took away that plan, uh, gave me a diagnosis through the oncologist of 10 to 13 months, uh, expected life, and therefore I never expected there would be further ministry. Uh, But I was very... Uh, limited and narrow in my view. Uh, There was opportunity for ministry even as I lay in the hospital bed and as I recuperated at home. But it's been an extraordinary joy, I must say, after 
a couple of years of constant treatment to, in 2014, be invited to serve within a church again. And it's a church that I've had great joy in going to, in Canberra, Stromlake Christian Church. I've been encouraged by the attitude of so many people in the church. Sometimes people have a view of churches as being a bunch of people who employ someone to do the ministry, but this church had been without a pastor for a little while and the ministry hadn't stopped. Uh, There were many people who were involved in serving within that community and I had already been the humble recipient of much of that ministry. I'd had people from that church send me cards and greetings and Facebook messages in the early time of my sickness and I was able to return and be encouraged by those greetings Uh, But also I'd had visitors and people uh, had spent time with me from that church. They'd they'd come from a church that I used to lead and so it was a joy to go back and and find fellowship with them again. And I've been with them now for, as I say, a bit bit over 18 months and I'm really so encouraged by what I see happening on Sundays and throughout the week. I see a very welcoming community. Uh, People have often spoken highly of of the greetings they've received as they've come into the meeting on a Sunday. Uh, It's probably uh, been the first church that I've been associated with that uh, in any given year has actually overmet its budget Uh, and I've been encouraged by people's generosity in giving uh, to the work of the gospel through the church but in so many other areas as well. We've introduced a new uh, strategy for profiling a range of different missions Uh, We have a a monthly lunch, we call it a MAD lunch, uh, and it is a little MAD at times, but MAD stands for Make a Difference. And so on that particular Sunday, there'll be someone who stands up for five or ten minutes, they share about a ministry they're involved in, and then as people have the lunch, which is free, they're invited to drop some money into the jar. And we've had had anywhere uh, between, on average, probably $5 per adult to... $30 $30 per adult um, given on those, uh, on those particular Sundays. And just as I think right across the spread of ministry going on with children and, and youth and, and people with disabilities and a whole range of things, I'm, I'm deeply encouraged by what I see Christian people doing together. And it gives me a taste of what I think God sees church to be about, that it is about humble service of others. It's not about what we get for ourselves. And... Um, I think if we bring this back to the gospel, what what we are seeing when we look at Christian ministry is a glimpse, and it it will always be only a glimpse, it will be a shadow, uh, a poor kind of resemblance in a way of, of what it could be, but we still get this glimpse of the attitude of Jesus at work, the attitude of putting other people before ourselves, and uh, even uh, over morning tea, I was, was talking with somebody here and they shared how a person from overseas had become a Christian when they came into their particular uh, church and ministry. They, they found the talks initially to be uh, rather long and complicated, but rather than turn their back on that, there was something about the attitude of the people, the, the love that they showed for her, Uh, that caused her to keep coming and then to ask questions and then to realise that the messages that were being given were actually the very reason for the people loving the way that they did. There you've got an example of the humility of Jesus being worked out. Now, what Paul goes on to do here in uh, Philippians is to build on what Jesus 
has done and give us some practical examples of how this can work itself out. Uh, So in verse 12, uh, we've got there, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, bear in mind, this is straight after verses 5 to 11. I think what he's saying is in the light of all that Jesus has done, and that is everything, uh, this is how you are to respond. In the light of the encouragement of Jesus in his humility to be humble yourselves, to put other people before yourself, to actually be motivated by serving and serving for the sake of the gospel, keep on going. And when you read the tenor of this particular letter, I know it's not always easy to pick up tone, Uh, by email especially, or or by letter written. But I think there is so much that's effusive here, there's so much of affection that Paul's showing to the Philippians that there's a very deep, warm relationship with them. Um, And and he's not here to beat them up. He's not here to say, guys, you have failed, you've got to do better. This is much more, "Hey, hey guys, you know the gospel, you're responding well to the gospel, so keep doing that. Keep on going. Um, th- this is a very gentle half-time talk. You know, th- there's no Dave Parkin screaming at other people going on here at this particular time. Th- this is Paul saying, just, just keep at it. Just keep them working this out. And that's what he says here. And my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue, keep on going, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not shaming them, he's encouraging them. And, and that I think is so valuable because the Christian life is not a sprint. Uh, well, it was for the thief on the cross, all right? He didn't have long to go. But for many of you and for, for many of us, the Christian life is an ultramarathon. In fact, um, the, video, the, the slide that you saw up there with the helmet and the fellow, Joe Mullins, Uh, I know Joe quite well, he lives in Canberra. Joe is 95 years old. Uh, I heard him speak at a conference the other day and he was more eloquent than some of the 30-year-olds that stood up and spoke. Joe has been serving Jesus for longer than most of you have been alive. And it has been a long journey. There he is. G'day, Joe. (laughs) It's been a long journey, but I heard just the other day that Joe had gone and met with and and read the Bible with and prayed with and spent time with a a woman, I think whose name was Kate, who I had some contact with because she was dying of cancer. And he was able to lead her into a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and take her funeral, and that's as a 95-year-old. No thought of retirement, continuing the Christian life. And Joe always points people to the Lord Jesus. I think that's what Paul wants for his people. That's what he wants to see going on in Philippi. That's what God wants for you and I, that, that we won't just start well, but we'll keep on going. And it's hard work. And there is opposition and there are stumbling blocks, there are obstacles, there's temptations. We just grow weary in being Christian. And God's word is so important in cheering us on. God's God's word actually helps inspire and motivate and energise us to stay Christian and to keep serving God. I've I've got a mate in Canberra who, he's a crazy man, he's 
he does Ironman triathlons. And, uh, you know, that, that just wears me out even saying the words Ironman triathlons. Um, basically, that means, uh, I think it's just under a 4K swim and then a 180K bike ride and then a, then a, a marathon, 42K run, on top of all of what you've already done. And he, he did one um, a couple of years ago over in Bustleton in Western Australia where there was a course that kind of kept repeating itself. And so you'd kind of be doing laps of this course and he said there was a point, and there was more than one point, where he just felt like stopping. And what kept him going was the fact that he kept going past his friends. And he kept going past people that he'd never even met before who would urge him to keep going. They'd cheer him, they'd offer him drinks, they'd push him and spur him on, and they were doing that right around the course. And I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful if that was what we experienced, all of us experienced as Christians? That when it's tough, that when there's temptation, that, that, that when we're just tired and we feel like giving up, that there'll be people there gathered around and say, no, keep on going. Keep on working out your salvation. Keep on doing that. Keep on progressing in your walk with Christ. It's an ultra marathon, but you're not doing it alone. We're there cheering you on and you doing the same for them. I think that's this kind of picture he's got here. Now, a couple of things to focus on with this. This is really to recap the point I started with in the first talk. He doesn't say continue to work for your salvation, right? Jesus grants you your salvation. What do you do? You work out the implications of that. You run that race that that you've started with Jesus and you keep looking to him. You don't work for your salvation. You work out your salvation. By that I take it it's the implications and practical uh, life of, of the Christian that he has in view. And you are to do this uh, in a particular way. Um, and so he says to do it with fear and with trembling. There's an acknowledgement, a reverence and respect here for God. Ultimately, it's, it's God who keeps you going. And he says that in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill uh, his good purpose, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You, you know, if it was up to me to keep myself going as a Christian, then I would fail. If it was up to you to keep yourself going as a Christian, I take it you would probably fail as well. It's God who starts it, it's God who continues it, it is God who finishes it. I love that, uh, that hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, Because through the verses of the hymn, you realise that it's grace that brings you into salvation, it's grace that keeps you going, and it's grace that is there at the end, and you enjoy the fruit of grace for 10,000 years plus. God is at work, and, and it is not up to us. We can rest confidently in God, and, and friends, I need that. I, I blow my New Year's resolutions before the 2nd of January. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many diets I've started and, and then blown. The, the, the only successful diet I've ever succeeded is the seafood diet. Where I seafood, I will eat it. Okay. Um, I'm allowed to have grandpa jokes now too, not just dad jokes. So. But the great news is that God is at work and, and we need to realise here the, the kind of economics of it, the, the balance of it, because it's not that we do all that we can and then are so relieved that God topped it up. There's not some kind of 80-20 principle, you know, we, we put in 80% or 20% and God does, does the opposite. It's not like superannuation where you can add your own to it. No, 
God is fully at work in your salvation, but he calls you to be fully at work in working it out. How much are you expected to do? 100%. Who do you give the credit to? God. How much credit do you give to God? 100%. I know, it's tricky, isn't it? But that's, that's the way God works. God is big enough to be able to be fully at work and yet to call upon us to put our faith in him and to continue to work out our salvation. And that's the way forward, to know that God is the one that we look to. But let's just pause for a second and look at a couple of words in verse 13. For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose, or in order to fulfil his good purpose. Both willing and acting are essential. To will and to act. See, it's not just the action, it's the attitude. To will and to act. It, it's, it's, it's possible, isn't it, to, <clears throat> to look good on the outside, to do the actions, but on the inside for something very, very different to be going on. Um, we can't tell another person's motivations. We, we, we can't tell another person's thoughts and, and what drives them to do what they're doing. We can see what they do, but they could be doing it for any number of reasons. The beauty is when God is at work, he's at work on the outside and he's at work on the inside. God is at work to will and to act. Both things are true and both things are essential. And, and God is interested in the whole person. It's interesting, it's a theme that, that we see consistently <coughs> pardon me, through the New Testament. It's a, it's a theme of integrity. So in, uh, in 1 Peter 5, when he's talking to elders of the church, uh, he encourages them to serve not because they must, but because they are willing. So it's not out of obligation, it's out of a heart, willful desire to serve God. Um, likewise, in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, when he's talking about the way that people give to the work of the gospel in the church, he makes it clear that God loves a generous giver. God loves a cheerful giver. It's not just how much money, it's what has motivated and the heart behind the gift that's uh, meaningful. And it's not just with money, it, it, it's with all areas of life. God is concerned not just for the action but for the attitude. And if I can kind of just take a little tangent for a second here, I, I think we need to recognise that that's an important part of our ministry to one another, um, especially as blokes. Uh, because we can be quite superficial and I don't think it's just blokes that can be superficial, women can be as well, but we can be, right? So let's think of ourselves. We can be quite superficial and we can judge on the performance, we can judge on the external, and so we can try and motivate people to do, to act and, and, and kind of perform in particular ways that can totally ignore the motivation and the heart that's behind it. And, and what's really significant is a heart gripped by the grace of God that that desires to serve God out of reverence and respect, out of deep trust in the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us, not a person who can tick all the boxes. Um, one of the uh, issues that comes up again and again as I meet with blokes, and I, I can almost predict that it's going to be an issue, when a guy says to me, look, there's, there's something that I want to talk with you about, I say, okay, look, I'll come over to your place. He says, no, look, I'd, I'd prefer if we can just meet somewhere private. He's talking about pornography talking about some issue of, of uh, sexual addiction perhaps, something that he's embarrassed by. And I've recognised that it's not sufficient to talk about the actions. We've got to get to the heart. 
because you can put all sorts of action strategies into place and because the heart's not right, it'll find a way around every one of those action strategies every time. So we've worked out a little bit of a strategy that involves three things. You might like to think about this because I imagine that if it's not an issue for you, it might be with other fellows that you're talking to. But three things. The first is accountability. The second is what I've called fences. And the third is what I call the heart or the will. And I think it's helpful uh, in the area of of accountability uh, to not be isolated or secretive about what's going on. It's good to open up to somebody else. It could be a a wife, um, although I think that there's a careful and loving way to go about that if if it's a problem in a marriage. Uh, To talk with the wife, it could be a Christian friend, somebody who's mature, it could be the pastor or or a leader uh, within the church. It can be something that, of course, is set up with with particular strategies, like software, the Covenant Eyes strategy, for example, where you have a friend who is sent information about everything that a person looks at online. Um, And so there's that kind of accountability structure that's in place. Accountability, I think, is a helpful and biblical strategy for dealing with our own sinfulness. Secondly, fences, um, and, and by fences, I mean things that are going to stop us uh, dealing with the problem. So if the, if the problem is access to the internet, it might be that you shut down that access and turn it off. If that's not possible, it might be that you put some kind of filter system on. It might be that you buy some kind of software. It might be that there's a passcode on certain personal devices in the home that, that you give to somebody else, and so therefore you can only access those things when somebody else is in the loop. Um, it, it could be that you literally go outside and, and put an axe through the computer or the TV screen. Um, there are fence strategies but for every accountability strategy and every fence strategy I know that there are people who've worked out a way around every single one of them and so you put on the accountability software and it it forces you to go through a particular um, access strategy with the, the internet and you find that actually there's software on there to get around that and there are companies and people out there making money to help you to look good while being bad. And so how do you deal with the heart? Well, you need to work at what it is that you are loving more than the one who loves you. And be reminded that in the gospel there is forgiveness and there is grace and there is the spirit of God that helps us to be transformed. And you need to pray that God will fill you with a a hatred of sin and a desire to honour and to trust him And you need to ask that the Spirit of God will help you to appreciate that God is actually loving in his intentions and to realise, again, the folly of short-term pleasure over eternal benefits. And there's a whole range of ways that the heart needs to be engaged. And I think we need to be a group of Christian men who recognise that change is not simply external, it's not simply pressured from outside, it's got to be from within. In fact, there's, I didn't mean to have a little excursus on this topic, but if this is an issue for some of you out there, I think there's a very helpful book called Finally Free, Finally Free, which I think engages not only the external strategies but the internal, what's going on in our hearts. I don't know if that's, John, is that on the bookstore there? No, it's worth tracking down, though, Finally Free, and I've forgotten the author's name. Okay, but back into the passage. Um, he takes us there from saying, okay, you've got to work it out, but know that God is at work and God will be at work on the inside and the outside. 
to some practical outworking. So verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now this seems really simple, doesn't it? Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour in vain, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Um, now I won't say a great deal about this, but, but what we see here is that, um, that the recognition of the gospel and what God has done for us actually flows over into the attitude of life that is seen in the way people live and the way people speak. So there's, there's a shining picture here and, and, and there's a radiation from the inside of the transformed person that affects others. So my conversation over morning tea about the, 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 the woman from overseas, she saw something in the behaviour of the Christians, um, it was radiated out that she was attracted to and then she was asking questions about where that came from. And so she started to link the word of God to the change that was being radiated out. And we've got to realise that simple attitudes can have a big impact on others, inside the church, outside the church. To not grumble or argue might seem like a very small thing, but it's incredibly counter-cultural and counter-intuitive. We naturally grumble. We naturally argue. You don't have to train somebody to grumble or argue. Um, I've seen this again. I've got a grandson who turns two next Saturday. He is very good at arguing and he's learnt what a tantrum is, which I take it is a, is a high volume grumble. All right? I don't think anybody taught him that. We're very good at it, but the gospel and the work of the Spirit can transform us to grumble less, to complain less, to argue less, and that is very attractive. And when you think about the breakdown in relationships, whether we're talking about divorces or church splits or business partnerships that break down, they all find their origin in grumbling and arguing. I guarantee if you go back to the very beginning of any major division between people, for any reason, there'll be some grumbling and arguing that is taking place. In fact, there's a, there's a famous account in the United States of a church that ended up having a massive split in a town uh, that caused enormous division for generations of people that could be traced back to a church elder being given a smaller plate of dinner than the guy beside him. That's where it started. Now, that's pretty important. So you make sure, friends, if you're going to apply this, that you give the biggest plate to the elders in your church because you do not want a church split. All right. No, it can be a disease in our churches, isn't it? And, and maybe think, how is your church going? See, one of the questions that I get asked, because I go to these Christian conferences, and particularly conferences for other pastors, like the one that Ben was talking about earlier, uh, is people say, oh, how's your church going? You know where my mind goes immediately? To all the things that I wish were better. And I can start to think, oh, gee, the music's a bit annoying at the moment. And boy, are we frustrated because we cannot get people who know how to operate a sound desk. And I'm sick of feedback. You know, that electronic feedback. I'm happy to take, you know, <laughs> constructive feedback. 
Um, and, you know, the leadership decisions and the pastor, well, he's not visiting enough. And we could go on and on and on and we can grumble and we complain. And the opposite of that is we can be proud and we can say how great our church is. But we're not focused on the right thing at that point. Critical spirit is not a virtue. When I hear people say, oh, that sort of person doesn't suffer fools gladly, I think, well, he needs to change then, doesn't he? When, when, when I hear people saying, well, you know, I just believe that I really need to tell it like, I, tell it, like it is. Do you? Why? Doesn't the Bible say something about speaking the truth in love? It does. When people say that a critical spirit or, or an, an ability to, to work out the things that always need to be changed is a gift, I think, yeah, it is. But it doesn't come from God. We need to be very careful of the damage that can be done by a selfish and critical spirit. But by contrast, friends, Paul's not beating them up. He's saying, look how much you've got to be thankful for. Look how much you can be grateful about. Look how wonderful is the work of God in you and among you. And that leaves an impact. When I first began in ministry as a ministry trainee at um, New South Wales University, uh, I went along to church one night and there was a guy uh, at the church who came from the residential college that I had responsibility for running a group in. I'd never met him before. Someone brought him up to, to talk with me and um, he introduced himself. His name was John. And he, this is what he said to me. He said, I want to know how to become a Christian. I thought, wow, I've been asked that question now. <laughs> Somebody has said, how do you become a Christian? I want to know what, how to become a Christian. He said, I said to him, do you know what a Christian is? He says, no. Oh, okay. So um, why do you want to become a Christian? You know what he said? Because I've seen the people in the college who call themselves Christians and they've got something that I want. So I gave him a copy of Basic Christianity by John Stott and I said, go away and we'll read We'll read it together. You read a chapter, I'll read a chapter and come back and we'll talk about it. My plan was that God willing, you know, in the 10 chapters or whatever it was, that maybe he'd become a Christian by the end of the semester. He read it all and got back to me in two weeks and he turned his life over to Christ. But he noticed the impact of people who weren't grumbling and complaining, people who weren't arguing, people who weren't divisive. He saw transformed lives. Well, Paul wants uh, not only to... Um, motivate us but to give us examples of what this looks like and I think he gives us a number of examples here the, the first example he's just given we looked at it last time that is Jesus all right Jesus is the archetypal example of humility um, also implicitly he's, he's giving himself as an example uh, it, Right through the letter, he talks about himself, his attitudes. You know, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, What's happened to me in terms of being put into prison has served to advance the gospel. He talks about being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service from their, safe, from their faith. Sorry, here in this passage. In chapter 3 and verse 17, he makes it explicit. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, I want to skip over Jesus because we've talked about Jesus. I want to skip over Paul because that's kind of woven into the whole thing. But keep our eyes on those who live as we do. Who, who, who else is there to look at? Well, in the rest of chapter 2 of Philippians, he spotlights, he turns the lens on two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I believe he does this to give us some practical examples of, 
of gospel-driven service, humble service in action. So let's have a look first of all at Tim. Um, Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Now I wonder if that reminds you of anything or anyone. Timothy here is an example to follow and he stands out from all the others. It's both inspiring and sad, isn't it? I've got nobody else like him. That's inspiring because Timothy is head and shoulders. But it's depressing because he can only point to Timothy. Uh, but what is, he, what is he talking about? Well, Timothy has no hidden agendas. He, he's transparent. He's, he's not manipula- manipulating them. There's no politics going on. He's not secretly getting other people to like him. He's not out for what he can get. He's not being self-centred. He has a genuine concern for their welfare. In other words, Timothy has the mindset of Christ Jesus. Because that's what he just explained about Jesus. Timothy is what this looks like. And friends, it is wonderful when we meet people like Timothy, isn't it? And, and maybe you have. And, and, and I have over the years. I, I, little, little aside here, I, I write a blog. I used to do it a lot. I've now kind of slowed down into doing it occasionally. It's called Macarisms. And I've just written my first post of what I would love to be a whole theme of posts over the next year or so, God willing. And I've called it gracious. Thank you. And, and I just want to shine a light on some people like Timothy, some people that have impacted my life in particular, uh, where their Christian faith has made a difference in how I see myself and, and how I've been motivated to serve. And there's one guy that I've written about so far I'd like to just tell you a little bit about this fellow. His, his name is Peter. Um, Peter's uh, in his uh, late 60s. Uh, he's been a sports chaplain at, at the Australian Institute of Sport uh, for over 20 years. When I first met Peter, I, I did so because I had a connection to the Institute of Sport, knowing a couple of the athletes who were involved in our university group. Uh, I discovered that Peter used to be a Church of Christ minister, but he'd given that up so that he could have an outreach amongst the athletes. But in order to fund this, he would, and keep in mind, he's he's, uh, he's in his 50s and he continues to do this into his 60s. Wow, somebody is very clever. That's him, that's Peter. And that, I'm pretty sure he's over 70 now, and that's him playing cricket. Well, not playing. Um... In his, in his 50s and 60s, he funded himself to do the ministry and that meant getting up at 3am to do paper deliveries in Canberra. And, uh, and he would go out to the AIS and he'd spend time with the athletes and he'd do it for nothing. He would take nothing for it. He would receive no kit. He'd wear no tracksuits or, or T-shirts or anything like that. Um, he wanted to do it absolutely free of cost. He wouldn't accept tickets to games or events And he had a huge impact on so many people. And friends, it was a privilege to know him and it was an inspiration and an attitude to copy. Just to see this guy who humbly served at cost to himself. He wasn't wealthy in worldly terms at all. 
But he gave out of the little that he had and he worked hard to get that little so as to be able to give. And I think that was a great encouragement to me. And he, in my mind, is like this Timothy who serves. And, and notice also, um, it's important that we see this because it's not just abstract service again. Verse 21, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Timothy is serving the church uh, and a whole bunch of different people. That's who he's serving. But deeper than that, he's serving Jesus Christ. So he's looking out for other people's interests, but deeper than that, it's the interest of Jesus. And and he serves as a son in the work of the gospel with Paul. It's Jesus, it's the gospel that Timothy is really serving He's serving Jesus. He has the same attitude of Jesus. It's not just abstract, humble sacrifice. It's in order that people might be saved. He deeply wants people to know the good news about Jesus, that they might be saved. And that's that's what I've been encouraged by with my friend Peter Nelson. Some of that money that he earned on paper rounds, he would go and spend on Bibles and on tracts and on Christian books. And he'd visit the athletes, the archers, the, the volleyballers, the soccer players, the the, the different runners and swimmers and so on and he would give them a Bible and he'd give them a Christian book and he'd help them to know where they could find a church. He'd print up these little uh, booklets with maps and, and diagrams and instructions and details so that people would find their way to meet up and find out about Jesus. He'd put on Christian meetings where people could investigate the truth and he would do this out of his concern for others. Uh, and meeting some of you, I, I've, I've already been encouraged by the way that, that some of you are taking practical steps to reach out to those around about you, both close at hand and far abroad. The attitude of Timothy is the attitude of Jesus. But there's another example that we need to see too, and that is Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, I think, works differently here Because he's not Jesus or Paul or Timothy. And the thing about Jesus and Paul and Timothy, who are the three examples so far, is that we can kind of put them in the superstar hero category, can't we? Jesus, easy. Paul, you know, he's he's amazing. His writings are in the Bible. Uh, We've got a guy who, at cost to himself, plants churches, and he calls Timothy his co-worker. So Timothy's obviously one of that... Super band as well, and, and, and these are the A team, right? But Epaphroditus is different. See, if, if I wanted to encourage a young bloke to, to play tennis, uh, and I say, just be like Roger Federer, all right? Just go out and play like Nadal, just be like Djokovic, okay? You can go, yeah, I know that's what I need to aspire to, but the gap between me, he doesn't know which end of the racket to hold. And what it's like to win Wimbledon is so big, I could never get there. And, and, and it's a bit tough, that example, isn't it? Um, or, or if you know, you're, you're, you're picking up a, uh, an instrument and you want to learn how to play jazz and you've never played an instrument before, and I say, just, just play like Miles Davis or James Morrison. You know, get their CDs and listen to them and do it. You go, oh, yeah, but how do I learn a scale? How do I learn... Yeah, when they kind of go and randomly play notes, how to keep it all sounding okay and not like a cacophonous mess. How do I do that, right? Or, or if, if, you know, you're... Well, there's all sorts of areas of life we could pick on. And I think 
saying, be like Jesus, be like Paul, be like Timothy, can kind of be a little like that for us, if that's all that we've got. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why, why God calls upon us to encourage one another, to, to, to actually work alongside each other as brothers and peers and people in the same boat, and that's what Epaphroditus is to the Philippians. Because when he writes of Epaphroditus, he's writing about one of them. Um, it's a bloke that they sent to support Paul. He's not an apostle, he's not a church planter, he's not a preacher or a missionary. He's just an ordinary Christian bloke. Um, it's possible that he, he was taking supplies for, for Paul because the, the prison system required on people to look after the needs of those who were there. And Epaphroditus was probably the one that they sent to take care of Paul's needs from the church in Philippi. And, and Paul now wants to send him back. But there's nothing second class about Epaphroditus. Look at the way he gets described in verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Paul is impressed. Paul is encouraged. Paul wants to spotlight one of them, Epaphroditus, and, and look at what he's done. Look at his attitude. And, and when you read of his attitude, it's extraordinary. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. In fact, he says, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Now, now get this, what, what, what's happening, right, is, is Timothy gets so sick that he almost died. Sorry, Epaphroditus gets so sick that he almost died. And so Epaphroditus is stressed out about that. Now, I can understand that. I've got so stressed out as well, being sick. Woe is me. Horrible me. Look at what's happening to me. That's not what's stressing him out. He's worried about the impact on the church back home, that they've heard that he is sick. (laughs) Even in his dire need... He's concerned about how that might be affecting others. And so Paul highlights that and says, look, here is a guy, again, who's concerned for your welfare. Here's one who is humble. I know that in in this group of people here, not not many of you are church planters or pastors or evangelists or or have formal ministry or training. Some of you are are builders. I've met carpenters. I've met electricians. I've met teachers. I've met social workers. I've... I don't know what you all do. Um, Epaphroditus is your guy, all right? Um, I I don't know what he did for a crust. He was probably a tradie. But he's an example to them in ministry. And so verse 29, So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. Whatever he did in life. Whatever his business, however he earned his income, whatever connection he had to others, what is he on about? He's on about the work of Christ. And he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. Friends, it's the attitude here of Epaphroditus that Paul highlights. Um, There is great humility. He's concerned for them. He puts their needs before himself. He's willing to take second place. He's other person-centred. He has the attitude of Jesus to copy. So what we're given here is not just instruction, but we're given example. We're given the example of Jesus, of Paul, of Timothy, of Epaphroditus. And it is inspirational, and it's what being a Christian 
should look like. That we should be known for our service of Christ and our service of one another. It's not easy and it's costly and I think it's going to get harder. I think it's become more difficult to be known, to be speaking up, to be acting in ways that are Christian in our society and it will only become more so. But friends, I've been greatly encouraged by those who've invested in my life, by my grandfather, by my father. And if I just mention blokes, I, I know that I'd skip over my mother who prays for me daily and has done since the day that I was born and I owe her so much. When I went to university, having grown up in a Christian home, I'm greatly indebted to a man by the name of Philip Jensen who taught me to understand that God actually speaks through his word and to realise that he had a coherent message that focused on Jesus. I hadn't seen that. I'd been in a Christian household, but I'd not understood how dynamic is the word of God. I thank him for that. I thank God for a guy called Richard who was studying social work two years above me took me under his wing and encouraged me through some difficult times. I thank God for people like Peter Nelson, the AIS chaplain who's inspired me, for other people within my own church, men and women. And I thank God that becoming a Christian for me has not been an isolated experience, that he's placed me alongside brothers and sisters and so many people who display the attitude of Jesus. Even here over this weekend, I've been encouraged in that way. I want to finish up by just telling you about a few other people who've inspired me. You may or may not ever meet or know any of these men, but let me just give you a little window into them. There's a guy at church, uh, his name's Trevor. Uh, Trevor struggles significantly with, with a, a range of, of um, health and mental health issues, but he's got a heart to serve like I have not seen. He gets to church early every week. He's amongst the last to leave. Trevor's a very big bloke. Um, he's strong as an ox. His wife calls him um, Mr. Incredible. And he is always unpacking all of this kind of gear. We meet in a school. Everything has to come out. And Trev's there doing it every single week. There's a roster, by the way, but it doesn't matter because Trev will be there to serve anyway. And we notice it when Trev's away, when, when something happens. And does he ever ask for thanks, appreciation? No, he actually dislikes me talking about him. So it's a delight to be able to do it here. It's a wonderful thing to see somebody who serves in that way. Let me tell you about another guy, a guy called Shane. I'd known this fellow since uh, 1988 or 89. Came to Canberra to be involved in ministry uh, with me. Um, and some things happened a, a few years later where there were some tensions in the ministry and I did not know but he held me responsible for something that had happened and when I was lying in the hospital bed looking like I probably wouldn't come out of hospital uh, he came in and said look would you mind if, if we talked because I've been hanging on to this for so long and I, I want to ask your forgiveness now I, I knew that we weren't as close as we used to be but I had no idea of this and I'm thankful that God placed it in his heart to ask that. And I was able to say to him, are there things that I need to seek your forgiveness that I contributed to the hurt that you've experienced and your reaction to me? And we were able to reconcile in a way which was beautiful. And we, there's a, a, there aren't the barriers now. And I can almost physically feel the difference as, as we connect together and we talk because in humility he approached me to seek forgiveness.
that's been inspirational. There's, there's a guy at church um, who uh, faces extraordinary challenges. His name's Matt. He, uh, um, he has a very significant job. He works in the public service in Canberra in the, in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, uh, which uh, you might have heard under the Kevin Rudd years, demanded people work pretty much every minute they could stay awake. But he has made a deliberate choice to work only three days a week and job share for the other two so that he can help run a children's club in a local school, so that he can free his wife up from time with their five children, that includes two twins, two sets of twins, so that he can be involved in the church as a member of our council, so that he can help out with the children's ministry at church from time to time. He could be earning a lot more money. He could be going all around the world. He could have all kinds of accolades, but he chooses not to. A couple of uh, holidays ago, my wife and I messed up a booking on the south coast and we ended up being rescued uh, by the parents of friends from church who said, look, come and stay with us because you've got nowhere to stay and you're down here. And I am so grateful that I messed up that booking because... I got to spend a week with a guy who had retired, his name's Dick, he'd retired from the Department of Agriculture in in country New South Wales. Um, And on his retirement, at a party that his department held for him, they said, so what are you going to do in your your latter years, in your retirement? He said, I'm going to help people get prepared for eternity. That's literally what he said. I'm going to help people get prepared for eternity. And you know he does. He goes around the town of Tarthra, meeting with anybody who will hang out, spend time, look at the Bible, who will accept him praying for them. He's not a minister. He's not trained for Christian ministry in any formal sense, but he is the voice of the gospel in that town. He and his wife have extraordinary opportunities. And when other people are seeking to sit back and enjoy all that they've earned for himself, he is investing in the lives of others for eternity. And that is an encouragement to me. Let me tell you about Sean. Sean is a, a, a friend who I've known for a long time but never been close to until I got cancer and he wrote to me. He wrote to me from his bed because he has had chronic fatigue for over 14 years and he barely gets out of bed on any day for more than one hour. Sean is uh, about 52 years of age, much the same age as me. He has four children and a wife. They get to spend virtually no time with their dad in any activity whatsoever. Sean could, I think, become so introspective and so bitter about what he's experiencing like so many people do, but instead he takes the opportunity to send messages to me and messages to other people like me and ask what he can be praying for while he's bedridden. That is humbling and that is encouraging. Let me tell you about another fellow, a young guy this time. He's, he's, uh, he's about 17 years of age. Um, he's, uh, he's been for a long time and, and a fairly elite athlete. Uh, he, he's run in national cross-country championships. He's, he's played four years of state rugby union. Um, and he's a, he's a kind of cool kid. He, he surfs well. Um, he's one of the boys in, in so many ways. And there's been a lot of pressure for him to get involved in what all the boys do. And as you can imagine, in a, in a footy world, 
uh, in a surfing world, there's a lot of pressures around about. I was deeply encouraged by him last year when I heard that the coaches had him picked to be one of the first in the state team to compete in the national championships but he made himself unavailable because he had committed to leading Sunday school and the training was to be Sunday mornings between 10 and 12 for a period of two months. When he was at the national championships because his family had already made a booking they anticipated he'd probably be selected And they went along and they cheered on the team. Other parents said to him, how come you're not playing? And rather than parade anything, he simply said, I wasn't selected. The same kid has been gripped by the gospel in a new way over the last year. And just before he finished high school in year 10, um, he was motivated to start up a Christian group in the high school. And there hadn't been one there for as long as we could remember. Um, over the course of that last term, and in some ways it's a pity it was only the last term, they made contact with over 40 people who came along to that group, many of whom are not believers. They had just heard about it and they, they wanted to hear what these Christians were talking about. And I guess having started that, he was keen then to get people to continue it after he left the high school. And so he met together with, with a year nine and a year eight person who we thought they're probably not equipped to be able to lead this yet, but with help they could be. And so he went along to a church's small group training program just so that he could take these people with them because he'd already done that program so that they could be helped to do it. And so he did it again. And he met with those people each week. Moving into a secondary college in Canberra, it's much the same as it is, I think, in Launceston where you, you kind of have a separate school for year 11 and 12. Before school had started, he made an appointment to meet with the principal and find out if he had permission to be able to start up a Christian group in that college and was granted permission to do that and has kept leading that group right through this year. Now, I debated whether I would use this particular person as an illustration um, because that person is my youngest. And he's been an incredible example and witness to me. And I thank God for the way that he's transformed a boy that I spoke to two years ago after I heard him sobbing in the shower and asked him what was wrong. And he said, Dad, I'm just worried that I'm going to lose you. And yet through the adversity and the suffering and the difficulty, God has worked in his heart to help him to realise, like Jesus, like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, that life is not about what I get for myself. It's about the investment in others for the sake of the gospel. And I want to leave you with that encouragement because that is what will make a difference for eternity, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. Let me just finish by reading um, a little quote from from a book by Tim Chester called The Ordinary Hero because that's what some of these people I've just mentioned are in my mind they're ordinary heroes someone mentioned he writes on the phone to me recently the death from cancer of a prominent Christian leader in his 50s she described it as a tragedy but his death wasn't a tragedy it was certainly a loss to his family his friends and to the wider church but it wasn't a tragedy it was a gain Let me tell you what a tragedy is, he says. Someone who gets a good education, 
secures a well-paid job, buys a house in a nice area, marries and has children and ensures that his children get the best education so that the cycle can begin again. Somebody has a has Christianity as a hobby or an insurance policy against hell. Someone who leaves behind a rusting car and children who've been trained to be self-indulgent. Someone with no gospel legacy. Now that is a tragedy. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word. Please ram it into our hearts and minds. Help us, Father, to delight in what we see Jesus doing for us and for your sake. Help us to be inspired by the Apostle Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus and the lives of Christian men and women around us to give up our selfish ambitions for the sake of Jesus. Please work away, chip away, root out the selfishness and the pride that so often shape our characters. Help us to have the humility of Jesus who is willing to take second place any time for the sake of seeing people saved. Please help us to go from here realising afresh that this life is not about me, but it's about you for the sake of others. Amen.